0: our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's so good to gather around thy word this morning hour. It's so good to be able to look to the perfect example Jesus Christ in a world of imperfect role models. Heavenly Father, as we would look together into thy word, now we want to ask for a rich measure of thy Holy Spirit among us that the words that would be spoken would be of lasting value and not just empty words. Be with those that could not be with us this morning. We're mindful of those that are on convalescent beds, those on hospital beds, those that are on beds of pain as well and have struggles of their own. Heavenly Father, we know that this world is a fallen one. And so these Things that plague us uh, are are still with us, but one day pain and sorrow will be taken away for those who are in Thee. Be with us now, dear Lord, and bless us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For this morning's meditation, I'd like us to turn to the second chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 2. I'd like to begin reading with the first verse. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six waterpots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunken, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. I've read up till the end of the 11th verse. On the little table next to my bed at home, I have a book. It's not very large, hardbound, kind of tattered and falling apart. It's devotional called Daily Meditations from the Life of Christ. It was written by a reverend sometime, I think, in the late 1800s, maybe early 1900s. And in it, I have read it through before and picked it up at various times, but for some reason I had never read the introduction, and so I took the time to read it, and he said some very interesting things. The way the devotional is structured, there's just simply a little phrase, sometimes only a few words long. And he said, "This is not intended to be an exegesis of the Scripture, not an elaborate uh, explanation of what the text is saying, but rather just a meditation on a few words from the life of Christ." And that little book has been quite a blessing to me over the years. I started started it again this year, and I've been reading it through and. One of the senses, one of the things I I, I get from it is a sense that here was a man who spent a great deal of time simply thinking about the Word of God. I don't know about his, his study habits, but just thinking about the Word of God. And some of the thoughts that he brings out from these simple words. Are really powerful and, and had an impact on me, and I'd like to share a few of them with you this morning, as best I can recall. I think, at least speaking for myself, that this practice of meditating on the Word of God is something we don't really do very much of in this day and age. I I think it may be because of this reason, and allow me just a few moments now. Study requires a great deal of effort. Um, It requires you to look at different sources, compare information. But study can be distilled. You can go to someone else's notes and and see what they have discovered and what they've pulled, and it's it's almost like it's been uh, pre-chewed for you. It's, it's, it's been condensed and presented to you, and that's it. But meditation is something you must do yourself, I think. Meditation is you and God and thinking about the things that he may be telling you. And maybe it's not a direct exegesis from the, from the text but rather just a few words, perhaps, that stand out to you and speak to you. And in in, in the stillness, in the quietness, God talks to you specifically from there. We're in a hurry. I confess, even this morning, with the time change, I got up a little bit later than I wanted to, and so I was rushing a little bit as I was uh, heading out the door. And I think that characterizes my life too much. I don't spend enough time just in careful thought. It always seems that there's something to do and something grabbing for our attention. This this account, it's not a parable, it's an account that we have in front of us this morning, I think is familiar to almost everyone here. You've probably heard it before and probably heard it ably expounded on by a brother better than myself. But there are a few things here that I gained from reading from that little devotion I'd like to share with you. It talks about a marriage, a wedding. You know, this, this account seems so out of character, perhaps, with what we would expect as the first miracle. We would expect Something grand, something showy, something exciting, uh, something dramatic, perhaps a resurrection from the dead or some great healing. But God chose, in his time, mind you. Remember, this miracle was over 30 years in the making. Of course, much longer than that if we consider the grand scale of time. But in terms of the life of Christ, 30 years in the making. And this is now the first moment. It was a wedding, a marriage, a time of celebration and joy. It says the mother of Jesus was there. Scholars think that by this point in time, Joseph may have already passed away, because I believe from this point on he's no longer mentioned. But Mary was there, and in spite of perhaps the sorrow of losing a husband, She did not withdraw from life, but attended this wedding feast. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. This was the first meditation from that book that I spoke about. So often, we're ready to invite Jesus when we have a calamity. When we have sorrow, when we're gathered around a graveside, perhaps, then we're happy to have him there with us. But how often do we invite Christ to share our joys? How often do we want him there to partake in the, in the joyful moments of life? We're quick to remember him when we have needs when we have sorrow, when we have difficulties. But when things are going well, do we invite him there? I also find it easy to mention God or the Bible to someone maybe who's in a difficult situation. But how often do I bring up the word of God or the name of God when there isn't an obvious need. Christ was there. And I don't believe he was sitting in a corner all by himself, sulking or something like that. He was participating in the joy. And I think this is something that we forget. We know that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We know he came to take our sins upon himself. but do we forget that he came to give us life and joy? Someone once said, Christ often went off into the mountains to pray alone. And what was that like? They're not recorded for us in Scripture. We can only speculate. We can only guess. But in a a life characterized by pain and by the cross, could it be that those times apart with the Lord were ones of joy and gladness and delight, strengthening him for what lay ahead of him? Do we invite Christ into everything that we do, not just the sorrows, not just the difficulties? He was there. And it says, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, they have no wine. I'm sure there are many in Christian circles that would like to expunge this portion from Scripture. But there it is. Does this mean that Christ participated in drunkenness and revelry? No. But there is a legitimate enjoyment for all of God's children in this world that already is. There is nothing wrong with that. If it be enjoyed with thanksgiving and with thankfulness in our hearts towards God. There was a need. Christ's mother says simply to him, they have no wine. They've run out. And the expectation from this is very clear, that she expected him to do something about it. Christ's answer is interesting and maybe a little puzzling for us. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Christ made it very clear that whatever he did, he did on the Father's time according to the Father's desires, His will, and according to His plan. He would not go one step ahead of His Father. How often do we, sometimes with good intentions and good motives, try to rush ahead? One of my faults is I tend to anticipate what people are saying, much to the annoyance of my wife. And I think I can already finish her sentence for her, and I know where she's going with it, and so instead of waiting for her to say it, I'll just finish the thought and we'll keep going. We'll save a little bit of time. Not Christ. He never went one step ahead of his father. We would do well if we took the time to ask God first if it is His time for us to do something rather than assuming that we know and the faster we get it done, the better. There was a number of, some of you know, that I, I like to learn about some of the revivals that have <clears throat> swept this continent and other lands as well. And there was a group of evangelists that gathered together uh, during the, I think it was Finney perhaps and and, and some others that got together and they covenanted together that they would not pluck unripe fruit. The desire for salvation is a good desire. The desire for someone else to be saved is good. But it must be on God's time, and they realized that. And there was a great wisdom in that, because a couple years later, when they went back through to check how many were still following Christ after two years from these great evangelical sermons, they found that something like 90-odd percent were still faithful and still kept their vows and their commitment to the Lord, all because men had covenanted together that they would not pluck unripe fruit. In our haste, we often make waste. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And then we read about these six water pots. From what I recall, just from memory, uh, they were quite large. Large, large vessels. I don't know how many of you have tried to fill a 50-gallon drum before with a garden hose, but it takes a while. Even with good water pressure, it takes a while. And you've got to stand there and watch as it slowly raises. Now imagine filling that same drum with buckets from a well that wasn't right next to the pot. There were six of them there, six of these large vessels. And it says, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. That was the command given. And they filled them up to the brim. Does this characterize our obedience? Or is six inches from the top good enough? He only gave one command, fill them with water. If it had been me, I would have said, well, how full do you want? I want to know when I can stop. But these men filled it to the brim. We would do well. To heed mary's instructions whatsoever he saith unto you do it but then having done it that we do it to the best of our ability and to the fullest measure that he gives us and he saith unto them draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast and they bear it an odd request i believe that when that water was taken out of that vessel and put into the bowl or whatever they served it in, it was still water. When they pulled it out and held it in their hands, it was still water. It doesn't say specifically here, this is, this is my understanding, but I think it comes out why I think this is the case a little bit later. It required faith. Obedience and faith are linked. I had a discussion with a brother last weekend here talking about this very same thing. Faith without works is dead, James says. And I will show you my faith by my works. You see, with my children, if I ask them to do something, but then I have to explain to them why I want them to do it every single time, Is it really obedience that they are offering when they do what I ask? Not necessarily. And isn't that the way with us as well? We want to know why. That's the first question we ask. It's the first question my kids ask. If I ask them to do something, why? Because of this and this and this. Oh, now that you've convinced me, (laughs) I'll do it. (laughs) But is that obedience? No, I think those men thought this is mighty odd, perhaps. But this man, there's something about this man. There's something about the words of this man. There's something unearthly about him. Never man spake like this man. The men sent to arrest Jesus said, Christ will not explain himself to you. so that you will do what he asks he says very clearly do and you will know do and you will know that is so counter to this world the world says explain to me first and then i'll do it christ says do it first and you will know why you're doing it and whether these words that i speak are from above I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said, Christianity has not been tried and found lacking, but rather, Christianity has been tried, found difficult, and abandoned. Do. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but look at this little parenthetical statement here but the servants which drew the water knew. It's only those that do that will really know. To everyone else, it will be an enigma, a question, an oddity. I mentioned it once before from this pulpit, but there was a a movie called Amish Grace that I watched and it was a, a dramatization of a real event where a shooter went into a Amish schoolhouse and shot a number of Amish children and the the scene that left a mark on me was it was the funeral now of the shooter and his wife was standing by the graveside with some hired chaplain or something like that that was going to bury him. And they sent a news crew to go film this burial of this wicked man. And the, the two are talking together and saying something like, you know, didn't, didn't she belong to some, some, some big church? And you know, no one's here. And then the camera switched around, and over the brow of the hill, black hats and white bonnets. And the man holding the camera just kept repeating, I can't believe this, I can't believe this. Forgiveness, godly forgiveness in action, an enigma to the world. BUT THE SERVANTS of the, OF THE LORD KNEW. THEY KNEW WHERE THIS WAS COMING FROM. DO PEOPLE LOOK AT US IN AN ODD WAY? THEY SHOULD. OUR MOTIVATIONS, OUR LIFESTYLE, SHOULD BE A PUZZLE TO THIS WORLD. but we will know why we do it. Not just simply to be awed, not simply to stand out for the sake of standing out. We do it because the Lord asked it of us. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunken, then that which is worse. Isn't that the story of this world? Just a a day or two ago at at work, uh, my boss mentioned an old proverb, I guess, that he had heard from his old aunt or something like that. The second cup of tea is never as good as the first. And isn't that the human experience? The first taste is always the best. And it goes downhill from there. That's the fallen world. I bet you that fruit in the garden tasted sweet on the tongue. But I think it is, like it says later on about the role to the prophet, it shall taste sweet in thy mouth, but in thy belly it shall be bitter. The first bit of money that we get is exciting, it's empowering, makes us want more. But for those that get more, are they satisfied? Are they more happy? Or does, like it says here, then that which is worse comes. Then the cares of of money. I I remember hearing from a brother whose family has roots in Eastern Europe, and he lived in Europe for quite a while. And he he liked to travel in his single days and go out shortly after the the Berlin Wall came down and and the, the Eastern European nations opened up. And they would go travel and visit believers over into as far as, 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 you, as the Ukraine. And he said, the further east you go, the less they have and the happier the believers are. And that stuck with me. In the West where we have affluence and we have riches, certainly compared to the rest of the world, are we happier for it? Or is it like the proverb says, that the riches multiply sorrows? Try this for yourself, my unbelieving friend. Taste it and see if what I'm saying is not true. The first bite of sin seems sweet. But ask yourself at the end what it's like. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Christ's life is a pattern for us. Everything he did was for our learning. His life was characterized by sorrow and then joy. And so it is for us. There is something wonderful coming. The good wine is yet to come. I'm one of those people that have a lot of interests. And one of the things that I've noticed about myself is I, I come across something new. And it's exciting. It's fascinating to me. And so I, I dive into it. And I... And I I get really caught up in it, not necessarily bad things, just things in general, interests, whatever they happen to be. I throw myself into them, and I really enjoy them, and I I, uh, start putting in time and effort and maybe money into it too, but it's almost like I could graph the experience. There's that initial high, but then over time, it tends to drop off. And eventually, it's not really quite as satisfying as it was before. There's one exception to that. And that's been my life in Christ. It gets fuller and deeper and richer as time goes by. That's not to say that my walk is always the best or my walk doesn't sometimes go up and down. But the more I find out about my God the more that I see Christ and the more that I understand about him the more that I hear others expound from his word the more that I I read from scripture the more uh, that I read the, the, the words of hymns and they they strike me in new ways the deeper and more wonderful it gets I just feel like I'm beginning to sip the good wine. There's a contrast here, too. I don't know how many of you have noticed, but when you're really, really thirsty and you have a, a drink of refreshing, cool water, it tastes so good, so wonderful. But as you drink more of it, you kind of it doesn't, doesn't taste so good anymore and you've had enough. The interesting thing about wine is what happens over time. The first sip is not necessarily the best indication of what's to come. Over time, the wine and, and, and the flavors, and I think it's ontology or something like that, it's a, something like that, the study of, of, of wine, but the flavors kind of develop and open, and sometimes you have it with a, a, a type of food, and it, and it just the, the one plays off the other, and it gets more and more <clears throat> interesting and complex maybe as, as, you, as you keep tasting of it. And at least in a small way, I'd like to draw a parallel between that and and this. With water, once we've had enough, we don't want any more. We're satiated. But wine, as we take in wine, it affects us. It changes us. Now... I'm not advocating drunkenness. I know you're not. I know you're, you're, you would not think that I was. But it affects us. And in the New Testament, it tells us, be not filled with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And from that scripture, we can take this useful parallel, which is, as you know, when someone has been drinking and when they've had too much, And you can see how it affects them. Someone should be able to tell when we have been filled with the Spirit of God. As wine affects the drunkard, so should the Spirit of God affect us. Not in an uncontrollable way, but the wine takes over for the drunkard and so the Spirit should take over for us and people should notice the difference. For those that spent three years with Christ, It was said of them afterwards when Christ had resurrected that they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. People should be able to tell that we spent time with the Lord. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him." I have to admit that when I was younger, this parable kind of seemed like an odd way to begin the ministry of the Son of God here on earth. But as I get older and think about it a bit more, I realize how appropriate it was. He came. His, his, his first act from God, as it were, was this marriage supper, this marriage feast. His last was one of sorrow that resulted in joy. And between those two poles, we see that Christ came to share our entire experience. Everything from our, our, our greatest joys to our deepest hurts from our sorrows and difficulties to also the times of rejoicing that we have. He came to share it all. We should be able to take comfort and joy in that fact, knowing that whatever we experience, he understands. Christianity, I think has a bad name in this world because people consider it a dour religion. This time of the year is called Lent for the Catholics, and their custom is to give up something during this time. And someone on the radio made a mention of it just this morning when I was driving here. That you know they give up chocolate or chips or something like that, or social media. That was included in there. I thought. That's interesting. The world knows this. They know this is what goes on this time of year. They get the idea that Christianity means giving up something. But how many of them understand the joy? Think of what Christ gave up because of the joy that was set before him. Is it the same for us? Do we look at the glass half empty? Or half full? Do we consider it a privilege that we can join Christ in letting go of our own rights and our own privileges that we can share in the joy that he's offering? Or do we do it grudgingly? I think it was Gandhi that said I like the Christians Christ but I don't like the Christians. Something to that effect. But they should be one and the same. Those in the world who see us should see Christ. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. Amen. Just as we were singing this hymn, I had one final thought that I'd like to leave you with. and. That statement that the governor of the feast made to the bridegroom, that men put the good wine out first and then that which is worse, is really a statement on the whole human condition. Things start well. Well, we have youth and vitality. Life is exciting and good. But as time goes on, as pain comes, as weakness comes, as old age sets in, if you're lucky enough to get there, things get worse. But for the Christian, for the Christian, there's still something else in store. A Christian in death is glorious because the best is yet to come. I remember once, we were at the all ontario Sing in Windsor. My grandmother was still alive. And we were called unexpectedly that afternoon to the hospital because she had internal bleeding. And so we went, the whole family was there went to her bedside and she was losing blood but she was singing hymns on that hospital bed she was singing hymns excited to meet her God that's how I want to go There's been an uptick, statistically, in suicide among the seniors, at least in the States. Simply comes from a hopelessness. Things are going to get worse, not better. And so it's better to just end it now and not experience pain. But for the Christian, because of the joy, like Christ, the joy that is set before us, we can endure. I pray that each one here will one day taste that good that is yet to come. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was spoken. Amen. This concludes our service.